Welcome to Black Health Matters. I'm Daryl Armistead, your host. This episode is a Zoom recording of Howard University group session led by Dr. Clive Callender. Just, just a regular appointment to see your doctor Mm-mm. or something is happening with you? No. <laughs> They'll, the doctor's office will tell you, go to the emergency room or go to urgent care. Yeah. And you know what else? The irony is that they say, um, you know, early detection <laughs> of a lot of diseases is key. And so if you wait so long, then how can you also have early detection? Well, early detection is about screening. And uh, screening means that you don't wait for symptoms. Uh, and what you're talking about now are symptoms, so people having symptoms. Whereas the ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure relates to going to see the doctor when you don't have any problems and no symptoms. Uh, and that, that's that's when you can make a difference. The question is, how many people actually actually go to see a doctor when they are well and uh, take advantage of the screening that occurs? And uh, but uh, uh, what is not so positive about the article is that the uh, uh, the data suggests because doctors are Experiencing burnout and other things that uh, uh, that's going is this is going to get worse. It's not yeah. going to get any better. They also they also suggest something that uh, uh, you you would find interesting is that uh, if the doctor has a uh, nurse practitioners or physician assistant uh, make an appointment to see them instead of the doctor, and you're more likely okay. to. Uh, uh, see somebody sooner than later. Uh, and they, any comments about that? Any of you comfortable yeah. seeing a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant? Lots, uh -huh. of times, lots of times when you make an appointment to see your doctor, once you get to the doctor, it's the practitioner, not the doctor. But I'll give you a prime example really right now. Um, I know I, you all heard me speak of after my hip operation, I ended up with dropped foot. And I noticed the other day that I had a little bump right at the bend of my, with my foot and the ankle. And I, I, I guess I thought maybe it was a blood clot or, you know, not really knowing what. And I thought to myself, it's going to take me a long time to get to see my doctor. <laughs> or else I'm going to go and have to go to the emergency room. And the last time my husband went to the emergency room, he was there for 14 hours. So I didn't relish that. So I happened to have a friend who is a nurse and I took my foot to her <laughs> <laughs> and let her examine my foot to see whether it was a blood clot or not. And she determined that it was not a blood clot. So I'm a little, you know, less anxious about it. But that's just the level of care that's available right now. Uh -huh. Sounds like a crisis to me. That's a, 
really sad because uh, it's interesting. They say 26 days and you say two months. And uh, I get calls all the time and I try to uh, uh, try to make appointments for people and uh, uh, I run into the same problem. Uh, uh, but uh, one of the issues is when you go to, to the urgent center, you still, you may get a, a resolution of the acute problem, but the long-term follow-up is still missing. And uh, uh, that's why uh, the hope is that you have a primary care physician taking care of you who can then uh, uh, identify uh, who you should go to for another opinion about something. Uh, and so, uh, how many of you actually have a primary care physician? I have one. Because if you have a primary care physician, they can facilitate you seeing somebody else and, and shorten the waiting time for you. Uh, is, is that not the case for you? No, not necessarily. No, not necessarily either. I mean, I still don't think my primary care physician really know me. I think it's still more less like, you know, she rolls in with the computer, she'll talk, be cordial. But to know me and to personally know me, I find that my doctors don't do that. I mean, they, they just get you in there and get you out of there. <laughs> That's well, sad it, commentary on the it is, it is sad. Yeah. Yeah. You Remember, know, I, I can't even... All, Remember, I told you all that I was having my yearly physical on the phone. Oh. <laughs> and on that's the phone. Back on the phone, a teleconference on the phone. And that's really? what she did. That's my primary physician. Wow. Fortunately, I'm not, I don't have any major health problems. Maybe that's why she did it that way. But her analysis, she just asked me some questions like we were talking about last week about you know, whether or not I was getting dementia, you know, that backward pounding and all of that stuff. She did that. And then um, she asked me about my blood pressure. Now, if my husband didn't have a blood pressure machine because of his diabetes, I wouldn't have a blood pressure machine. So, but she asked me how my blood pressure was. And she just asked some general questions. And that was it. That was that. I, I've been going to her for, hmm, I'm sure, 10 years, 8 years, 10 years. I feel like she knows me, but she doesn't, you know, it's no interaction. Really, when you go to the, I might as well sit home because other than getting my blood pressure and stuff, when I go there, it's no, it's no touchy or let's lay down and let me examine you. No, they don't do that anymore. Oh, that is so sad to hear. They do not do that anymore. That's unfortunate. Well, on the other hand, I've got a good relationship with my primary care doctor. He's kind of new because I moved two years ago, so I had to get one closer to home. Uh, and uh, the relationship was so good that he wants to uh, be on my mailing list to come to some of my shows. But the problem <laughs> is that he's going to retire in the next five years. <laughs> <laughs> and you know we got a doctor shortage and uh they say a third of all the all, all the doctors working now are expected to reach retirement age in the next 10 years 
So that's going to drive up the doctor shortage even more. Wow, it's a real crisis. And then the burnout phenomenon is taking others away as well. So this is really a crisis. I, I had uh, someone come to me with, with a request about a specific specialist. She wanted a rheumatologist. And uh, it was difficult to find. As a matter of fact, uh, they're few and far between to find rheumatologists in the DMV area. Uh, and uh, it was a difficult chore to find somebody to see. So if you want a specialist to see you, it becomes even more difficult. Uh, so so we really, it's, a, it's amazing that even right here in the uh, DMV area, which is uh, allegedly ripe with physicians, there's still a problem. And the waiting, it's interesting because the waiting time that they have in this article is is much shorter than what uh, uh, what it really is. Yeah, yeah. My husband even went to, he was having trouble with uh, uh, pain in his jaw. Just, and he kept, he didn't want to just rush to the hospital, except for his diabetes. He does that religiously, but he kept having this pain, so finally he said, um, "I'm I'm going to urgent care." And we went to urgent care, and it took maybe about three hours, I think, three or four hours. But <laughs> they looked at him and first said, um, "It ha has to ha have something to do with your teeth, your dental," and he started. He started laughing because he said, I've had dentures for over 10 years, so I don't have any teeth. So what <laughs> So they sent him from there, their recommendation was to go to the emergency room. And that's when he sat in the emergency room for 14 hours. And they finally, they did run plenty of tests, he said. But they finally sent him to a specialist for stenosis. And that's now he went to he went to see him one time and then they did an MRI so he could get really what the problem was. Now that was almost a month ago. His next appointment after the MRI is the first of December. <laughs> so that's how. That's how. <laughs> oh man, that's yes. So that's really sad. it's just the way it goes. <laughs> wow. So that's just the tip of the iceberg. Yes. It's really bad. Well, wow. from a patient standpoint, I can't say that patients are fans of specialists. You know, if we have a good primary care doctor, you want him to do it all. But then, uh, especially like if you get into advanced health problems where you have uh, a cardiologist, uh, oncologist, you know, the list goes on and on. And you don't feel like any of your specialists are talking to each other. And then you start getting into drug conflicts uh, because you're, this one specialist is uh, prescribing medicine that the conflicts with what another specialist is prescribing. 
you know, you wish that your primary care doctor was managing it all, but you don't feel like they're managing the whole process. You feel like they're just um, an observer keeping track of everything your specialists are doing. Family doctor is gone. <laughs> you know, it's, inter it's interesting that you would say that because when I went for my 60th reunion, uh, the other, there were three of us who showed up. One was a, uh, a family doctor and he still, he still does home visits. <laughs> but as you say, uh, they're, they're, they're few and far between. Old family doctors and people who really care about you and uh, come and visit you and see you and all those kinds of things. It's amazing, though, if you grew up in that era, era, you you really understood what a primary care doctor and a family care doctor really was. This day and age, it's uh, it's it's not even conceivable. Uh, and the way you talk, it's. Uh, far cry from what it used to be and it's getting worse all the time because doctors are burning out and other things and, and as you mentioned uh, retiring uh, so that uh, it's a real crisis that we really haven't done anything about uh, and, and it's interesting that in this article they have about 10, 10 different ways of finding uh, a new doctor, but one of the things that they emphasize is leaning on your primary. Hmm. Uh, but you're saying the primary is not much of a primary. Yeah, wow. Well, you know, that means that, uh, hmm. wow. Okay, uh, uh, I'm gonna see if I can get some of these uh, primaries to come and talk to us about that over the next, uh, couple of months so we can ask them uh, I know Dr. Obisasan is a geriatrician and, and geriatricians are few and far between as well uh, right. and of course that's the kind of doctor that uh, we need and when you're over 65 they think they say a geriatrician is, is probably the best for you but uh, uh, you can't find that many geriatricians. So, okay, well, where was your doctor that that your primary doctor that still did house visits? Where does he live? Yeah, not he, that, the area not around, I know. Not around here. <laughs> no, not no, in this he's area. From Ohio. <laughs> and he is rural he's, Ohio. <laughs> and he's ninety years old. Oh God. <laughs> Well, I just did a quick search on what countries do not have a doctor shortage, and the answer is there are no countries that don't have a doctor shortage. So, you know, oh, moving wow. somewhere else doesn't solve the problem unless you want to move to a healthier country. But that's just because their lifestyles are healthier. It's not because they got enough doctors, because nobody has <laughs> enough doctors. Yeah. Well. Dr. Callender? Yes. My parents were in a program and they still have it in, in DC. There's a group of doctors uh, out of Washington Hospital Center called the House Call Program. And the people have to be, um, I think, housebound over 
75 and house or housebound, or if you're 90, it doesn't, you know, and you're housebound, um, they come to the home and you see a primary, you see a physician, you know, a, a nurse practitioner every month and you see the doctor three times a year, unless there's a problem. And they bring x-rays, machines to the house, Doppler machines. They take your blood. They um, they do everything from the home. And um, it was a good program. I was taking care of my parents and I had my parents in that program. And uh, it's a still an ongoing program. Uh, program and it's a very good and they're geri gerontology that's what they specialize in medicine for older people and they have uh, it's in Washington DC well why don't you they, uh, give me why don't you uh, uh, email me or text me and give me the name of uh, somebody from the practice and I'll see if I can't get them on the program okay all right, I will. Okay. All right. Thank you very much for that information. Yeah. On the same note, um, my sister, who's in a assisted living facility, she has those same services because her assisted living facility is like she's in an apartment, and so that's like her home now, and so all the doctors and nurses and medicine and all that is coming to her. And that was the exact reason why she had to leave her house, her real house, because she was there by herself and nobody was going over there. You know, I mean, she had people come in, you know, eight hours and do this cleaning and that, and then they're gone. But in this assisted living facility, she has 24 seven care doctors, nurse practitioners, you know, Everybody, laundry people come in and watch her clothes. Everything she got, everything. That's great. That's great. Yeah, it'd be interesting to, to talk to her to find out if that's really true. Uh, you know, because you're surrounded by that, doesn't mean necessarily that they come around to see you. But it'd be interesting to hear her perspective of that. Yeah, they give her medicine. Her medicine on schedule. Yeah, yeah, they do that. Yeah, I. I just thinking back when my mom was alive, she died in 2001, but there was a family physician who did come to the house and he, he was an older man, old, older doctor. I don't know his age, but he was elderly then. And um, he, he still had his practice. He, his practice was on Benning Road somewhere. But um, he he did come to the house. She was a heart patient, and he would come to the house. He did regular house visits. But I haven't heard of anybody since then that has had some, just a regular doctor come to their home. But like I said, she passed in 2001, so that's a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, John, do you want to go to the, the first uh, article? Sure. 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 
<laughs> interesting. <laughs> interesting that uh, this would be the first article. But this is uh, uh, something that we've talked about sometime for some time, and that is that uh, uh, some people think that uh, uh, people over 65 should be tested periodically to see if they should still be practicing medicine. And here's somebody who recently sued because they have mandatory cognitive tests, which violates the ADA Act. And uh, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Uh, because uh, as you can see here, Henry Ford requires all members 70 and older to undergo cognitive screening tests every five years after. Anyone who refused would have to resign or be fired. <laughs> Uh, that's, uh, that's an interesting thing that not too many places have been bold enough to do this because they realize it, it violates the, the law. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see. Uh, uh, you can see that 12% uh, of physicians were at least 70 years old. From, and uh, so uh, it makes sense to have uh, screening programs like this, uh, even though it is against the law. Um, so the question is, this lawsuit will have a tremendous bearing on whether or not you can actually uh, do tests like this and uh, uh, have people demonstrate their cognitive abilities or resign or be fired. And so it's going to uh, be interesting to see how this stands up in court. Any thoughts about it, and how how are the doctors that you see who are over seventy? How is their performance? Did you think any of them uh, required uh, additional cognitive testing? I don't see any now over seventy, but I used to have a, a doctor who was um, aged, and I he was fine. He was one of the last doctors that actually examined me. <laughs> That's a sad commentary. That's a sad commentary. My primary care doctor is over 70. And uh, he had talked about retiring and then going into um, some kind of service. I forget the name of it, where they're um, uh, only working with you. Um, I can't think of the name of it. Anyway, I love him. And uh, of course, there are many doctors out there. I'm not quite sure how old he is. Definitely he's over, over 70. I think he's between 75, 80, something like that. And um, I've moved out of that area, but I continue to go to him. And I will continue to go to him because I trust him. He's patient and he's very thorough. Um, I think it's based on the individual and the trust and relationship you have with that doctor. Age, um, in some cases, well, in this case, it doesn't matter with me. I mean, he's older, but I think he's knowledgeable. I trust him. He's thorough. And I'm not going to leave him until he leaves me. I'll put it that way. <laughs> You're blessed. <laughs> I am. I, I trust him 100%. Even though I got a little leery after we spoke about this last uh, week 
about, uh, he started a few years ago, and I guess that was when I turned 70, of doing these cognitive tests for me. You know, say a few words, and then he has this long conversation. Oh, what was that we were talking about earlier? And then he did something where there, uh, a picture of interlocking octagons, a shape. And he asked me to draw, see if you can duplicate that. And just a little testing he does with me to see how alert I am or what my cognitive skills are. But um, I'm good. If he's checking me, he's fine. He's thorough. Any other commentary? If not, uh, it's uh, interesting. Uh, uh, some doctors are like fine wine. Yeah, uh, yeah. With age. Well, you know that, Dr. Calendar. You have lifelong patients, and they wouldn't dare leave you. So yeah. it's trust. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of think, and that could be wrong, but I, I don't know. I just think that the older doctors were trained differently. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. it appears that they were trained differently than the younger doctors are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It seems that way, doesn't it? Uh, it's, it although yeah. they uh, although that should not be the case because you know, I, I still go to the uh, Freeman's Clinic, which is a clinic for patients who do not have any insurance. Mm -hmm. And uh, they still have the same training. I, I, they still required to do physical examinations, histories mm -hmm. of physicals. Uh, but the, the, the thing that I notice is they uh, tend to want to rely on x-rays and lab tests and other things more than the history and physical examination. But they still, in medical school, are taught uh, the same history and physical examination skills. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, the problem is that after they finish medical school, they become more reliant on uh, the other aspects of it that, and, 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 and forget that 90% uh, of the diagnoses are made based upon history and physical examination alone. The, the doctors of today walk in the room with their laptop. <laughs> and they do. And this older doctor does the same. He comes right in. Hey, Janice, how are you today? And he sits down with that laptop. He knows more about me than I know about him. What happened to that appointment with Dr. Jones last week? Did you see him? Well, I know you did because it's all in my laptop. So he's up to date <laughs> on all of that. He's good. I like him. It was concierge service, something like that, Dr. Calendar, that he was going to go into. And oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it would reduce his patient size and you pay differently. And he said, I'll give you more attention. Will you give me all the attention I need now? He takes his time. He will come in and put that laptop up and go through all of my previous appointments and what's scheduled recently, um, test results, I can't answer more than that. Yeah. That's idea. Okay. Um, let's go to the next article then. All righty. It's interesting how that uh, over time things change, but they don't always change for the better. Mm -hmm. But they certainly change. Uh, now this is uh, uh, yeah. additional news. It, it, we were just talking last month about the 
fact that the Queen's Heart recipient was doing well and had no complications. And now we see that uh, he's died. And uh, it's a setback again uh, as we try to find the source for uh, donors as we know that 17 people die every day because of the shortage of donors. So this is an effort to use the big model as a donor because we don't have enough human donors. And so uh, this is a setback for this process because uh, it's the set, uh, well, they've only had two done, but both have died within two month period. Uh, and so the question remains now, what what went wrong? And so we'll have to wait until they look at all of the uh, reasons why the rejection occurred and yeah. why the patient died. This is the longest survivor so far, 60 days. Mm. So it's a little disappointing uh, because we hope that uh, this would be the beginning of something that would result in more uh, transplants from other species. So sadly, uh, uh, we'll know with over time what happened to, because the first 30 days were great. Okay, any other comments about this xenotransplantation, which is hopefully the way in which in the future we'll have a way to prevent those 17 people, seven, one, seven, 17 people who are dying every day because of the shortage of donors. Yeah, this is a, kind of a sad commentary as well, because <clears throat> we were looking forward to um, as you said, increasing livelihoods. Um, but now it's almost like they have to go back to the drawing board. And as you said, they got to figure out where mm -hmm. the rejection came from, how it happened, and what they could do about it. Yeah. yeah. You, my, my thought process is it, the fact that they all, in both these cases, <clears throat> this was the very last resort, they said. So does that mean that the patient was so close to death already? I mean, maybe if yeah. they, I know it would be kind of crazy to do it, but if someone <laughs> would, would volunteer that's not quite that bad off, <laughs> maybe the pig transplant would work. Well, you know, you know that what you say is very true. Uh, however, since it's ex experimental, uh, mm -hmm. that's how you get permission to proceed because there's no other option. But I think your point is very well taken. Uh, but uh, I, and I think after they've analyzed uh, uh, why this particular why this heart was rejected. Uh, then they can uh, come up with some ideas. But until then, 
We just have to wait it out. But your point is well taken. I think uh, xenotransplantation is something that we'd love to see come to fruition, but uh, we have to wait until we're able to analyze and, and get to the point where, as, uh, as Balak has said, that uh, we can uh, do it on patients who aren't on death's door. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, let's go to the next one, please. But it, it, it just underscores the fact that the uh, shortage of donors is the number one problem with transplantation today. There's an article that we've had discussions about, but we haven't, we haven't really talked about it. And this is a challenging title. Can engaging in oral sex increase your risk of head and neck cancer? And uh, it points out that Oral pharyngeal cancer rates have increased steadily, and they're related to the virus. Uh, human papilloma virus. Uh, and uh, uh, this is present in most humans. And uh, oral sex is a significant risk factor. Smoking and alcohol as well are risk factors. Uh, but uh, what we have not discussed is what role does oral sex play as a risk factor? And it is clear that uh, the human papillomavirus is transmitted by oral sex. And uh, uh, of course, we now have a vaccine that we, we want children to take uh, in school. Uh, so that they have antibodies and therefore they will not develop uh, cervical or oropharyngeal cancer. Uh, cervical cancer is still killing people because they get the human papilloma virus uh, uh, because they aren't vaccinated. And so uh, uh, although there's a, a double the rate of oropharyngeal cancers in men, uh, it alone is not responsible. Uh, smoking, alcohol, uh, still uh, the commonest factors. But it is clear that uh, HPV-associated HPV cancers occur. And uh, uh, it's something to think about. So the question is, uh, how many men uh, uh, actually, uh, and this article says 70% of the head and neck cancers are caused by HPV, which is the virus we're talking about. So uh, it's clear that uh, uh, this is uh, uh, as a disease that is preventable by the vaccination and also by uh, uh, avoiding oral sex. And what has not been studied yet, and that's what the, the rest of the article talks about, is uh, 
how do we know that uh, this is the, a real factor, a cause-related issue? And uh, it uh, it's clear that the virus is associated with the cancer. The question is, uh, is uh, oral sex the major way in which this virus is uh, transmitted? And uh, uh, when you talk about condoms or dental dams, uh, I don't know what a dental dam is, so. Uh, uh, but, uh, Doctor, a dental, a dental dam is just a sheet of plastic that uh, a dentist placed in the mouth when they need a dry field. Ah, okay. So it, it's a it's a square piece of plastic. Okay. And uh, boxes, and uh, it it it's it would cover it would cover the mouth area. So and, that and it was maybe the tongue as well. Huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right, that make that makes sense. Then that would be a way of uh, it would be the equivalent of uh, a condom for the tongue kind of thing. And, right. Uh, yeah, and uh, uh, it, it probably sounds as attractive uh, as as <laughs> having a man put on a condom, but uh, uh, but of course, if if there are two options, one is. Uh, the HPV vaccine, and the other is the dental dam. Uh, so, well, grown vaccine. people don't, don't don't get the vaccine because we've already been exposed to it. Is that what the situation is? Well, if if you if you're 45 and older, then it's too late for the vaccine. But if right, you're young, that's what I'm saying. We've always been exposed exposed right, yeah, to it yeah. at some. Right, mm -hmm. and I'm, so if you're under 45, you could get the vaccine and it could be helpful, but the younger you get it, the, the safer you are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this, this audience is mostly women, but uh, uh, it's helpful for men to understand this is another risk factor for uh, oropharyngeal cancer. And the parents and grandparents to uh, make sure that their males and females uh, get the HPV vaccine. Mm -hmm. Because most schools require it, uh, but you have some parents who fight it because they don't like vaccines at all. Anyway, so. Dr. Callender, do you think that this um, increase in um, the cancers has any correlation to the fact of same-sex couples? I don't think so, but uh, uh, because oral sex occurs in same-sex and heterosexual. So, yeah. So I, so I, I, I'm not sure. I don't think that that has been analyzed, and that that's another thing that yeah. needs to be. 
analyzed. Uh, but uh, all of all same sex couples today, you know, they marry and they, you know, so it's that's true. Yeah, they do. So many uh, more now than yeah, at least more I, than we know of. <laughs> yeah, a lot more than right. we know. Of. Know of. But, uh, yeah, so I, I would suspect been there that, all the time, but just more than we know of. So maybe, right? Yeah. And but I would suspect that many more uh, would be occurring from male, the heterogeneous root with the uh, uh, male, uh, uh, the male and the female uh, being the conduit. Uh, Cunilingus is a, a practice that uh, is rarely discussed among men, but uh, is a practice that occurs nonetheless. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And but they didn't address that question that you pose, which is a good one, uh, because the presumption often is that the oral sex is occurring between the, the male and the female. But as you pointed out, uh, uh, that is often uh, the way in which uh, males and males uh, have oral sex as well. So, so uh, we'll move to the next one, unless there's any other uh, discussion about this article. In this day and age, uh, uh, our children and uh, uh, are, are interacting with uh, families of heterogeneous and homosexual uh, situations, which uh, was rarely seen before 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but now it's uh, something that we see often. This is a, a Lung Cancer Awareness Month. And uh, we now are talking about lung cancer screening, especially to people who are current or former smokers. Uh, in the past, uh, lung cancer screening was uh, really only for those people who, who had a uh, uh, 20 year greater pack year history of smoking. Uh, because of the increase in, in women, cancer in women and younger women from 38 to 54, uh, they're expanding it so that uh, many more uh, women uh, who haven't smoked uh, longer than five years are now being included in the screening process. The screening process is that you have a lung scan, uh, which, uh, so if you have not smoked for five years or longer, uh, they have not been including you in the screening process. But because of the fact that lung cancer is the number one cause of cancer deaths in the United States, uh, uh, and because deaths are so common uh, the screening criteria are now uh, being applied to people who uh, 
smoked uh, for five years or more. Although it's without question, if you have a 20 year history, uh, but, uh, but uh, because of the high risk of death with uh, lung cancer. And I'd asked before if, you, if many of you know people who have died from lung cancer. And uh, uh, an early detection of lung cancer may perhaps pre prevent the, the number of deaths so that uh, they can have surgery or, or therapy uh, directed to them before lung cancer gets so far advanced. Dr. Callender? Yes. I was in a, I was in a study back in 20, I think it was 20, um, 15, no, tw 2013, I think it was. Uh, I had smoked for uh, 40 years and I stopped smoking and I got into a study where they gave you low dose um, you know, low dose uh, radi um, radiology. Yeah, screen. Right, and I was in a program where they, they did that. They took different people from, depending on how long you smoked, how long you had stopped, and they did it all the way up until, um, well, they did, my. I was with the program for five years, but they stopped because I got um, I had thyroid cancer and they didn't want to expose me to radiation anymore after, after, after that. But, um, I, I was in that, I was in that study for the low dose radiation. Right. Okay. Interesting. Thank you for sharing. Uh, and I think the the uh, fact that it's occurring in people who are 35 to 54, 38 to 54, is uh, frightening. Uh, what is uh, interesting is that younger people still smoke. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, in Europe, people still smoke as well. Uh, the poison that we've created is used all over the world. Uh, and so this is the hope is that uh, with lungs screening that we can pick up cancers early and, and decrease the fact that lung cancer is the cause of more cancer deaths than any other cancer. Okay, well, any other Comments? If not, we'll go to the next article. It's interesting, you know, uh, how uh, as a young person, it was it was uh, the right thing to do to smoke. Uh, and so, those of us who never smoked uh, weren't thought of as fashionable, but. Uh, now we find that there's a price you pay for smoking. 
Now, this is an article that says that 70% of cancer deaths are preventable. And uh, uh, that's an interesting comment. Uh, uh, and But when they talk about it, they talk about uh, dietary changes, uh, smoking cessation, and uh, looking at, at all of the different ways that you can develop healthy lifestyles. But you know, when push comes to shove, the bottom line is that from their perspective, 70% of cancer deaths are preventable, but uh, that's also recognizing that uh, cancer is associated with ultra processed foods is a, a common cause and also the fact that uh, screening, taking advantage of the screening that occurs is also possible. And uh, so uh, this is why they are saying that uh, that 70% of the cancers are preventable if we change our lifestyles, avoid smoking, avoid alcohol, and eat healthy. Uh, perhaps more easily said than done, but nonetheless is something that we have to really take seriously as we age. And this is something that is particularly common, as this article says, among women around the world. Cancer ranks in the top three causes of premature mortality among women in almost all countries. Uh, and uh, while we talk about, uh, and of course the lung cancer is among the uh, worst, and then of course cervical cancers can be cured can be prevented by HPV vaccine. And uh, so that, that uh, uh, so that it is true that many of the cancers are preventable. Any other comment about these? Yeah, I've got a comment about the, uh, the ultra processed food. Um, and and I think it's kind of unfortunate that we tacked ultra onto that because a lot of people say, well, my processed food is not ultra. My processed food is fine because I like it. And because I like it, it's safe. But the whole key is to read the ingredients and, uh, you know, you get the alphabet soup on the end because they usually put uh, ingredients by percentage of content. And so all of the chemical additives, they're always at the end and you look them up and you'll find out things like they say banned in, um, in Europe because they're dangerous. Uh, but you get a lot of information. Uh, you know, unfortunately, to, you either got to stand there with your phone doing a Google search in the, in, the, in the grocery or you actually have to buy it bring it home, check it out, and then decide that you need to either return it or throw it away. But the real guide is if you've got an alphabet suit at the end of your ingredients list, 
just don't buy it. It's uh, don't worry about whether it's processed or ultra processed. The chemical soup at the end of the ingredients list means that you shouldn't buy it. Just forget about it. <laughs> Any other comments? Okay. Uh, Daryl always gives us good advice. I will have to say that since I've been uh, coming on this uh, Zoom, I have stopped eating so many frozen dinners that I used to eat religiously because I don't like to cook. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I have cut down. I haven't totally stopped, but I have cut down. <laughs> well, when you know better, you do better. <laughs> well, That's true. Okay. I invite any of you to come out and spend a week with me, and uh, yeah. you'll have a week of chemical-free eating. Oh, God. <laughs> when are you coming back to D.C.? <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> Buy me a plane ticket. I'll be there next week. Oh. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's go to the next article. Interesting how, uh, oh, this is an interesting article about so-called fried rice syndrome. Uh, and this is a term that is popularized by social media, but actually refers to food poisoning. Uh, and oh. this is cause of food poisoning. This focuses on a 20-year-old who died after eating five-day-old pasta left out at room temperature. And this is illnesses from food that isn't stored, including anything from grains and meat to cheese and pasta. Uh, oh. So the fried rice syndrome is a, a misnomer, but uh, it, it has to do with any kind of food you leave out. And uh, uh, it's interesting is you talk about a 20 year old because when you're young, you're kind of stupid and uh, you might leave something out and say, ah, well, it's okay. But food poisoning is still something that, and this this says they should not leave anything out for more than two hours on refrigerator. Oh, and uh, that makes sense. and. Uh, and also, it, data indicates that even that which is refrigerated or frozen has a timetable on it as well. And uh, of course, uh, Bacillus cereus is not the only bacteria that can uh, cause food poisoning. Uh, but uh, I think the, the real moral of the story is uh, uh, if you have anything that's uh, more than two hours out, you should throw it away. Because that's the moral of the story. 
You know, that means that uh, if you're fixing Thanksgiving dinner and dinner is at four o'clock and the food is out and set, if they don't get there by seven o'clock, you got to throw all that food away. <laughs> That'll be the day, huh? <laughs> We were on uh, the same page, John. I was just getting ready to mention Thanksgiving is coming and you know how long the food sits out. Right. <laughs> That's right, man. <laughs> uh, two hours is light stuff. Right. <laughs> uh, what I'm, so what I'm saying is everybody, uh, please be on time for Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, well, it's, it's interesting how they uh, did an anatomy of that case and uh, the association of the diarrhea and vomiting that he had after he did all of that. And he didn't, at 20 years old, he didn't have sense enough to do anything else. See, if he had, a, if, if he was living with his parents, they would have taken care of him. They told him. You know, we started, we, well, they would have prevented him from, from, from eating anything that was five days old. I mean, gracious. Yeah. That's so. excessive. Overnight, I've done that so many times. Fall asleep with my dinner after, after eating and eat, eat it, pop it in my mouth the next day. <laughs> <laughs> Well, be mindful of the potential. I put everything in the refrigerator. Okay. Soon, almost as soon as I finish cooking it, sometimes it's still hot. I put it in the refrigerator. <laughs> One of our sessions said that the limit on keeping it in the refrigerator was four days. Yeah. Unless it's in the freezer. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I well, Sylvia is a freezing person. Uh, Sylvia freezes everything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm That's close right. to that That's too. Right. I'm close my to that limit, too. Yeah, my limit is seven days. And around here, they all know Thursday night. What is it, everybody? Trash day tomorrow. Get that stuff out of the fridge. Amen. Thursday night Amen. is gone. Trash day Friday morning. <laughs> My my day is Monday night. Trash day is Tuesday. <laughs> right. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, yeah. 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 Okay. I, right. I freeze a lot of foods too, though. What you know, <clears throat> cook too much and it's still sitting there two or three days. I'll put it in a container and put it in the freezer. I do that too, especially now I live by myself and um, they're not coming in like they once did. So instead of throwing it away, after yeah. maybe two days, I'll put it in the freezer. Where you live now, you still uh, have the same trash day? I'm still going back and forth and trash day is still the same at both places because I'm only 10 minutes away. Oh, um, yeah, but, uh, but today's Thursday. And I have more leftovers than anything because I seldom cook now. And uh, but Kayla will be home next week, so she said, "I want this, this, and this." So I'll cook. <laughs> <now>. <laughs> yeah. uh, 
Uh, okay, let's look at the next one. All righty. Let's see what we got here. Well, you know, it's interesting. We we spend so much talking time talking about nutrition. Is it worthwhile? Absolutely. Uh, I think uh, we all want to read. I guess that's what uh, Dallas told us on many occasions. And uh, uh, this article pretty much agrees with him in terms of uh, uh, identifying that uh, there are many ways to skin a cat. So there are many different uh, biological factors that uh, uh, tell you how to eat and what you can eat and what you shouldn't eat. And uh, one of the things that uh, we didn't learn very much about in medical school was nutrition. Uh, and uh, that's a shame uh, because uh, as we uh, age, we recognize how important nutrition is. And you wonder why. Of course, now that, that is not the case. When I came through a medical school, nutrition was not taught that much. Now it is. And we, we've learned from our mistakes in the past. And so the doctors of today uh, have, have more interest and more, just, and more education about nutrition. Uh -huh. uh, and that's something that is uh, positive. Uh, because in many ways, the medical school, uh, when I went to medical school, nutrition was an afterthought. Now we recognize that uh, uh, nutrition is in a, in one of the most important medications that you can deal with is the food you eat. And as you go down this line, it just talks about how the patients can be involved in, in uh, the food they eat and uh, uh, why uh, the foundation of uh, medicine is about nutrition and why individual diets are important. The avoidance of lactose uh, for some, gluten for others, and uh, also uh, recognizing that uh, we've got good and bad, bad bacteria in the gastrointestinal tract. And that uh, uh, for all uh, walks of life, it, it's important to uh, so-called eat healthy. And uh, I think most most uh, most diets are now uh, emphasizing fruits and vegetables. Uh, some are emphasizing elimination of meats, and some are eliminating. Uh, uh, even seafood, but uh, uh, many are, are minimizing uh, the amount of meats and emphasizing vegetables and fruits uh, over anything else. Recognizing that uh, uh, tailoring the uh, diet to your particular needs are, is important. Uh, many have talked about the different types of diet, uh, including the Mediterranean diet and the uh, other diets. But the, the important aspect of it is that the emphasis 
the de-emphasis on uh, on um, on meats and the re-emphasis on fruits and vegetables. Oh, okay. uh, I think that is the hallmark of most of the diets that are associated with long life. Uh, uh, and then, and of course, living over 65, 70, so forth. Uh, and so uh, we now recognize that uh, nutrition is the open door for uh, longevity. And uh, uh, not even talking about the so-called processed or also ultra-processed foods. It's the issue of uh, actually eating healthy. And uh, any comments about the, the so-called precision nutrition, which is really a way of saying that uh, fruits and vegetables are the key and whatever else you want to add to it uh, is okay as long as it's not uh, unhealthy. And of course, we all recognize that uh, the way we, we process foods in the United States in many ways is is very unhealthy. And Dr. So, Calder, what occurs to me is that, for an example, um, a pregnant woman and, uh, and the same woman uh, not pregnant would probably have a, a different tailored uh, diet. You know, because I noticed that when women are pregnant, the doctors step in and they say, well, don't eat this and stay away from this. And then when the child is born, they can tailor their diet differently. Well, th that's another interesting aspect because the eating, eating habits of pregnant women, that, that's another story uh, because uh, they have strange appetites and uh, uh, the, the obstetrician gynecologist who works with the pregnant woman has got a, a, a real job ahead of them because uh, they have uh, appetites for things that aren't as nutritious for them or the child. But uh, yeah. uh, any comments or other thoughts there? If you, you women have been pregnant, so you know what that's all about. Yeah, pickles and ice cream, please. <laughs> okay, let's go to the next article then. This is an article, I'm sorry that uh, John Buchanan isn't here. But uh, this is an article that, uh, is it ethical to, to compensate plasma donors? And uh, many of you uh, recognize that uh, they used to pay for blood donations, plasma donations. You remember why we stopped? Because it was unethical. No, it's not why we stopped. Wow. Anybody, anybody know why we stopped? Anybody remember why we stopped? No, I haven't knew they paid. We, we rarely ever do anything for ethical reasons, by the way. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, so I mean, it wasn't. That's a doctor who said that. Yeah, but it's true. We don't, yeah, I agree. I agree with you. But yeah, would anybody remember why we stopped doing? It? No. Remember uh, Arthur Ashe? Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. I thought they still did it. I thought a lot of homeless people would donate they, blood. I get ready to say they do still for pay. For like dollars or something like that. I don't know. They do still pay for for uh, blood donors. Mm -hmm. They don't pay for blood donors. Mm -hmm. But this is plasma donations. Oh, okay. Oh. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Maybe not plasma. They stopped paying for blood donors because remember Arthur Ashe got AIDS from mm -hmm. blood transfusion. Blood transfusion. And that's when they stopped it because they realized that a lot of people who were, uh, were would come and sell their blood uh, uh, would get paid for donation were sick. And so they stopped the process way back in the 80s. It's a long time. 80, you know, it's amazing. 80 is, uh, we're talking about 40 years ago, 80s. But, uh, but I know a guy who still, goes and donates blood and gets paid. Well, I don't know. I don't know any place in this United States where they pay for blood donation. Plasma donation is 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 uh is a little different from blood donation. Oh well maybe it's plasma, but I know he goes yeah, that's, that's his weekly job. <laughs> <laughs> it is this particular person I'm talking about. It's his, it's his weekly job. He that's how he he goes and donates. So maybe it's plasma, but I know he gets. Yeah, just as I said, the United States allows for paid plasma donations. Yeah, maybe. But maybe but, it's plasma. but, but, uh, but the blood donations that John is doing is uh, for quite a while they've stopped paying for blood donors. Because yeah, I, I'm a blood donor as well. So no, I know they they don't pay for that. But right, that was one of the reasons because okay. Uh, and we talk now about ethical concerns, and uh, but at least for the blood donors, uh, and and of course, uh, one of the issues now, the reason this comes up, is because uh, blood donors are still decreasing, and there's a great need for blood, uh, as there is for plasma, uh, and uh, and so the fact that they are paying for plasma donors, uh, if they didn't have it, I don't know where we'd be. Because there's a, a global blood shortage, not to speak of, in spite of the fact that they pay for plasma donations, still, uh, still shortage of plasma. Yeah. The Red Cross calls me two or three times a week to, to come and donate. That's for plasma? No, for just regular blood donation. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. They still take you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Amazing, because they used to have age. No, age. I don't, no, I haven't heard them say anything about age lately. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, that's good. I'll be 80 in a few months. They they still call. They still. Wonderful. Well, that's good. Last time well, I went, they took it. <laughs> yeah. Mark Buchanan is given 100 gallons. Yeah, more than a hundred now. Yeah. I'm a long ways from that, but I do, I do. Yeah. Did you see his certificate? He showed his certificate on one of our group sessions. 
I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, I yeah. might not have been on. I don't remember it. But, but like they say, selling plasma is a multi-billion dollar industry. Oh, so your 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 friend your friend is probably plasma. Okay. Right, 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 right. And so the question is, is it ethical to do it? Well, here's the question: Is it ethical to stop doing it? <laughs> uh -huh. Because we think about it, if you didn't have the plasma, wow, where would you really be if they stopped paying for it? So, Dr. Callender, uh, my question is about uh, the middleman, the hospitals, because the hospitals have to make use of the plasma and they have to charge patients in hospitals for whatever services they get, including uh, plasma operations. So who is behind uh, giving the donor the money? Who's behind that? I don't know. Uh, and uh, I don't, I have, I have no idea who is, uh, who pays for this $25 billion <laughs> that is, is paid annually. Can you imagine $25 billion? The plasma annually. So I just like you said, your 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 friend uh, is that's his job. Yeah. He goes at least once a week, twice twice sometimes, but at least once a week. So so uh what do you what are your thoughts about any eth about any ethical reason why you would stop paying them? And then what would be the consequences if you stop paying them? I feel like if it's needed, they need to pay them and give give them a minimum wage like they do everything else. <laughs> yeah. Well, the fact that your friend is still doing it says he's yeah, it, it must be a significant amount. Yeah, it must be. It must be. And and for every unit of blood, we use about uh, three or four plasma units mm. because the plasma has the fresh components in it that uh, sometimes the blood doesn't have. Because it may be yes. In other countries, don't they, people can sell their organs and make money from in other yes. countries? Yes. Even though it's unethical, yes. Right, right. Yeah. But see, uh, the thing about blood donation, um, when you donate your blood, then your, your body just compensates by making more blood for yourself. Uh, right. Right, right. In plasma, I think it's the same thing as the doctor. Yeah. Okay. So my point is this. Um, what my question is this: What is uh, platelet enriched plasma? That's just plasma that, uh, uh, in other words, the, the blood has uh, red blood cells. That's blood only, packs blood cells. Now, whole blood has platelets and, and plasma with it, okay? And so, uh, 
platelet-rich plasma is plasma in which they uh, uh, emphasize the amount of platelets in the plasma, which is already in the plasma. And uh, that's what they use to heal bone uh, problems, arthritis, and all of those things. Which, And there's a lot of controversy as to whether it's of any benefit or not. But anyway, it's, an, it's a new type of therapy that we use for bone problems. Mm. Dr. Yes. Did people at one time, did they give athletes or something, uh, blood injections or something to boost their their um, uh, metabolism or something like that? I don't know about that? one time, because I don't know. I'm not aware of that, no. That doesn't mean it happened. I just, I, I'm just not aware of it. I was thinking that 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 they were doing something like that, and the Russian athletes they were giving them, um, giving them uh, injections or something of blood. To yeah, they were. They, yeah, yeah. As they were, in, and as a matter of fact, one of the bicycle uh, scandals yeah. was associated with. Uh, Exactly that, and right, and, and right. I reason, thought I was hearing he that forfeited, forfeited all of his awards oh, because yeah. he was getting blood getting blood transfusion. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So it's illegal for them to do that. Yeah, yeah. I, I seem to remember something about um, that you got a physical boost from getting blood donations from a young donor. Yeah, and uh, that's. That's why uh, uh, that was disallowed. And uh, uh, as a matter of fact, for the bicycling uh, races and marathons, they uh, made that illegal. And if you uh -huh. did it, you would have to forfeit your prizes, which, yeah. they, which happened. I was a blood donor back in the 70s. I have O positive and they used to come and get me, pick me up and and from work and I'd go and give blood and they'd take me back. And that I did that all the way up until I got a, uh, when they came out with the vaccine for hepatitis, my job required me to have that vaccine. And once I had uh, taken the vaccine, uh, Red Cross didn't want my blood anymore. Hmm. Well, this is an interesting article about the controversy about playing for plasma. Uh, as you, as we already mentioned, uh, organ or bone marrow donations, uh, paying for that is illegal. We have a law against that. Many other countries don't have that. And then uh, egg and sperm donations are paid for as well. That's a big business as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, with with so many uh, uh, people needing plasma, and since we've already established the precedent of paying for it, it's unlikely that anybody's going to make plasma donations uh, illegal. Uh, uh, Dr. Calendar, this article made me change my opinion. I think it's uh, it's okay to do this. Wait. Because just think about it, uh, doctors and hospitals are in the business of saving lives, 
And this is one way they can do it. And the benefit is what I've highlighted here. Some of these poor people can go to college, get through college, and put food on the table at the same time. Double benefit. Well, I think that, yeah, well, the bigger benefit is saving lives. Saving lives, exactly. Right. The other thing, uh, that's, that's a sidebar. So what do they have? Do they have uh, uh, blood plasma banks like they do? Uh, yes, they do. Okay. Yes, because uh, the plasma has uh, so many factors that uh, the antibodies in the plasma, so many uh, great things are found in the plasma. Is I heard um, the the pot O positive blood. They they say that that's used can be used so many. Is that the universal donor? Right. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm O positive as well, and that that's why I guess they call me so much. Yeah, that's the universal donor. <laughs> yeah. AB is a universal recipient. O is a universal donor. Oh, so that's the most desirable of all, mm. O positive, yeah. or even O negative, whatever. They don't come pick me up, but they sure call. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, uh, this is food for thought, uh, but I, I think that uh, we've we already become dependent upon it. To change it would be asking for trouble. Yeah. So it's it's a controversial issue, but to me, uh, uh, the uh, fact that we have established the precedent and have been doing it for so many decades, it'd be it'd be unwise to to change it now. I thought it was certainly crucial for us to discuss this. Uh, and speaking of the friend that, that does donate, um, I, I think some of he, the reason why is because he he's limited as far as um, finances for jobs. You know, he doesn't have the skills for a higher paid job. So the minimum wage and stuff like that just doesn't cut it always. So that's just another means of him surviving. Just uh, yeah, just as uh, John pointed out, uh, these are fringe benefits that uh, uh, for some are not fringe. So that's a very, very worthy article to discuss. Yeah. Okay. Next one. All Mr. right. This should be the last one, I guess. We got three more. Um, okay. Well, it's ten thirty though. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I thought this would be an article that uh, has this device that would stop menopause symptoms, uh, which is hard to believe. But uh, this uh, device, uh, which has not come uh, 
it sells for $299 as a way to manage hot flashes. I mean, we had talked about this before, but uh, up until this point, there wasn't a device or medication that, uh, except for estrogens, which uh, addressed this. So they devised this new device that actually um, continuously monitors skin temperature, et cetera, and also uh, eliminates the uh, uh, hot flashes. Uh, I don't know anybody who's used this non-hormonal treatment, but it's food for thought uh, because the, the reason that people don't want the hormones is because uh, there's a concern about uh, increased risk of breast cancer. Right. Which does not occur with this device. So anyway, this is just to be aware that uh, uh, there is such a device. Uh, and, uh, the question is, how efficient and effective is it? And that's uh, what this article does not identify. But it does say that it, it does work. Uh, I'd like to see the uh, the data on it, but uh, on this device, I haven't seen that though, but it's good to know that there is that device that uh, doesn't have the risk of breast cancer. So thought you should all know about that. I'd be more impressed with a device that would stop menstrual cramps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Just four okay. years of those. <laughs> and it's yeah. and a few years of hot flashes. <laughs> yeah, that, that's something to deal with. Wow. So I, my wife, I, my I, wife I would really want to talk to somebody who did it use the device to see what they thought before I would. Uh, yeah, I'd like to see some data on yeah. <laughs> More data on that, yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, your point is well taken about the menstrual cramps. Because, mm -hmm. Wow. My wife couldn't go to work a lot because of that. Oh, yeah, I'm telling you. I was fortunate I didn't have too many of those. You're blessed. Yeah. 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 Yep. Let's go to the next article. Okay. This is the second to the last article. Okay. Oh yeah, we. we I think Dr. Bisasan talked much about the fact that, uh, and and you guys actually mentioned comment about uh, sometimes the primary doctors and aware of all of the drugs that you are getting from the different specialists, mm -hmm. and as a mm -hmm. consequence, uh, older adults are at risk from seeing different specialists who order different medications. If the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing, you're on too many medications. Mm -hmm. And uh, older adults are particularly at risk because uh, uh, too many cooks spoil the broil. And, right. uh, and too many medications that are with one drug interacting with the other. Uh, the risk of polypharmacy is uh, one of the biggest problems we have with older 
patients. And uh, so, which is why uh, geriatrician is uh, a particular value because they recognize this and minimize the polypharmacy that goes along with people who are over 65. Right. I have been fortunate to go to the same neighborhood pharmacies, not uh, big chain stores. And I I guess mm, I've probably been going to this pharmacist for over around 30 years or more. And they catch things, you know, when you they see that you have a medicine that coincides with some, they'll mention it and tell you to check with your doctors. That's very good. That's good. You know, the role of the pharmacist in uh, helping patients with their medications is underappreciated. Yeah. But yeah. they play a major role. Or they can play a major role. Well, mine does. Yes. Mine really does. That's good. Yeah. We talked before about the fact that uh, some of these medications are especially in the elderly are responsible for increased risk for falls. And uh, that's why it's important to, to know what medications you're on and what medications interact with one another. Right. Even now your, your uh, insurance wants you to order from the big box stores and get 90 day supplies. But I resist that, I stay with my pharmacist. I just okay. Let's go to the next one. Please. Okay. And here is the last one. Oh, I it's the same we one. We already did that. Yeah. <laughs> right. We already did that. Okay. So, uh, um, any of the comments or issues that we need to discuss before we? Leave. Uh, hey, listen. Tomorrow is uh, we're celebrating uh, Veterans Day. Yes. Yes. Any veterans? Any veterans on uh, the the program? No. Well, it's interesting because uh, November the eleventh is actually Armistice Day, Veterans Day, uh, but. Uh, I know Howard is celebrating it tomorrow. Uh, yeah. I don't know how many other places are celebrating it tomorrow. Well, but the actual day is November 11th. You know, Betty? No, I don't. I was getting ready to say when a holiday falls on the weekend, they celebrate. If it falls on a Saturday, the celebration is on Friday. Well, look, right. And when it falls on a Sunday, the celebration is on Monday. So. Right. That's that's why. Yeah. So enjoy your your day off or whatever you have for it. But I want to mention while we all hear that uh, Carlene, who usually is a part of the program, part of our Zoom call, I saw John on you all's invitation to your cookout this summer. I don't erase things off of my. Texas, and I saw that she had put on there 
that she had lost the contact to the group. And so I sent her the contact, but I don't know whether she just didn't go back and look at it. So I'm just telling you, so maybe you all can include her again. Yeah. Okay, because I want to uh, call her and see if she got it. Yeah. yeah, I saw that you had done that. Which, uh, yeah, which yeah, but I know that she hadn't been on since then, so that's why I'm saying it could be oh. that you just hadn't had a chance to. Yeah.